Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Mark David Monk, a U.S.-based emergency physician and author of the extraordinary new book, Urgent Calls from Distant Places, an emergency doctor's notes about life and death on the frontiers of East Africa. In it, he reflects on his experiences as a volunteer flight surgeon in parts of Eastern Africa, including war-torn Somalia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including what led him to volunteer as part of the East African Flying Doctor Service, what he saw and learned during the experience, and what he thinks we ought to know about the people and places that he encountered. Dr. Monk, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Hey, thanks so much, Sean, and thank you again for the invitation to join you. Let's start with your decision to volunteer with the East African Flying Doctor Service. You mentioned earlier in the book that though you had worked in resource-poor settings before, you had never been to Africa. What led you to want to go there, and what did your family and colleagues think about your initial decision? Yeah. So, you know, this, when I went to Africa the first time in 2008, it was really a bit of an in-between phase of my life. I had um, come to medicine fairly late. I studied humanities in university and uh, decided quite late to go to medical school. And that took a number of years to get the required courses. And, you know, uh, as time went on, I went to medical school and residency. And I finally got to the end of my training and I was working in a university setting as an academic emergency physician. And I started looking around the emergency departments. And then, you know, as today, there was just such overcrowding and such a demand on the system, such dysfunction at the highest levels, that I, I very quickly realized that I was suffering from the early signs of burnout, even though I had only been in the field for a short amount of time. And experiencing what I think we would call today as moral injury, although we didn't really have the terms for it back in 2008. And so I realized I needed some time away from the emergency room, some time to spend by myself in an unfamiliar setting and really start thinking hard about how I wanted to spend my career. Africa was a bit of a accident. We I happened to know somebody from uh, Toronto who many years ago had spent time at um, AMREF, uh, East African Flying Doctors. And uh, I, you know, I sent them a note and I said, hey, I'm a doctor. Do you guys need anybody? And they got back and they said, yeah, what are you doing next month? So I signed up and found myself within a few weeks um, landing in Nairobi. Uh, the book provides a really great historical overview of the East African Flying Doctor Service and how it's evolved over time. Let me put it to you, Mark. When was it founded? What does it do? And how does it differ from other medical NGOs in Africa and other places of need? Yeah, it's it's a remarkable organization. And, and you know, it's 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 funny. Sometimes it, I think it flies a bit under the radar, despite the fact that it has offices, you know, all over the world, one in Toronto, they have an office in New York, all through Europe. 
So the Flying Doctor Service was really founded in uh, the early 50s, 1953. There were two British doctors who founded the organization and one American. They were all reconstructive surgeons, plastic surgeons mostly. The, the Really, the lead of this was the chief surgeon for the British during World War II and had really specialized in reconstruction. He retired uh, to Africa and set up the early Flying Doctors, which really at the time were a couple Cessnas and doctors flying themselves around East Africa and landing in rural hospitals and doing surgeries and having clinics and then flying back to Nairobi. And really, the organization grew incrementally from there. The doctors would visit, they would see patients, they would fly. Gradually, they recruited a few full-time doctors to do that work. And, and over time, the organization emerged it really into an air ambulance service. They became really the game in town if you were hurt or really seriously sick in East Africa. Really, the only people who could get into those runways cut into the jungles and uh, the savannas, and they knew the people, they knew the politics. And so uh, Flying Doctors grew really into a, a world-class aeromedical service. They, they actually today still win awards for like the top air ambulance service in the world. They've won a couple of times, but it's also expanded beyond there. It's become an NGO that does medical education. They have a healthcare university. They do research. Uh, they do all types of specialist outreach. It, listen, the organization today is about a $200 million revenue organization. I think what distinguishes it from many other NGOs is that it is squarely African-led. I mean, the founders were certainly foreigners who came in and set up shop, but today AMREF is a, a large African-led organization that's doing really, really incredible work. Give people a sense of what would happen when you received a medical call. Mm. How quickly would you receive notice after an incident? And typically, how long might it take you to fly to see a patient? And where would you see them? What type of care might they receive before you reach them? Yeah, so, so the book itself is... Uh, Basically, 22 chapters, each one a different mission. They detail trips that we took to 11 different countries in East Africa. Really, the way it was structured was that I was basically resident at the airport for the time I was in Africa. There was a guest house not far from AMWF's headquarters at Wilson Airport, which is the secondary airport in Nairobi. And we carried cell phones. And when the flying doctors were alerted that there was an emergency call, they would scramble a team, two pilots, a local nurse, and the physician who was, while I was there, typically me, I was on call 24-7 for calls. You know, I'd make it down to the, to, the, to the hangars. We would load the aircraft with all kinds of medical equipment, really ICU level equipment, and then take off. You know, the, the missions were so meticulously coordinated. The operations people knew the place backwards, knew the airstrips, knew exactly which planes to send. We had small ones, we had bigger ones. And so, you know, the missions were all different. Uh, it, was, it was really all through East Africa, 11 countries that we touched. And uh, what's the farthest distance that you would have traveled uh, on one of your missions? Uh, you know, we went up to Ethiopia a number of times and Sudan. We were in Somalia a number of times, particularly in the latter part of, of my tours there. Tanzania, Uganda, I mean, really all over the place. The first case in which you provide medical care is for a family that's been in a car accident in Tanzania. You describe how little medical equipment or technology was available to them before you arrived. Mm -hmm. And when you got there, they had received only the most basic care. Bring us back to that moment when you got off the plane. Was it what you expected? How did you and others seek to bring order to the chaos, as you put it in the book? Oof, yeah. I mean, that call 
you know, it's shot is seared, seared in my mind as, as such an extraordinary experience. Yeah. I mean, we, we got a call and I hadn't been in Nairobi for long. I think this was my first couple of days in country. And we got a call from rural Tanzania, not far from the uh, Kenyan border, that there had been a terrible car accident and that there were seven victims. And so uh, uncharacteristically, AMREF sent two planes. There was uh, two, two King Air twin engine turboprops that were sent to the area. We landed on a dirt strip that was, you know, the pilots had to circle a couple times to scare away the wildlife off the strip. And then these, just in these extraordinary feats of aviation, the pilots brought down these twin engine planes and landed on the field. And um, we looked over in the distance and I could see the ambulance was there and I could see that there were basically bodies laying in the grass next to the ambulance. So, you know, they teach us the first thing you do in those situations is really not to react, but to take stock of what, what you're facing uh, and to do an inventory and to try to triage patients according to how sick they are. And in that particular case, what had happened was a family was coming back from a party in Tanzania and they had in the middle of the night hit a tractor at full speed. There was no lighting. It was a rural road. And so when we got there, there were seven patients, but really there were a bunch of green, uh, we call them green patients, not so sick, and then yellow were sicker. But there was one red patient who was a little boy who unfortunately was in his mother's arms in the in the passenger seat of the SUV. And, and when they hit the tractor, the boy flew forward into the windshield and was found laying on the windshield. You know, as you say, there wasn't much to be done. I mean, there was a local clinic, but, you know, they, they just didn't know where to begin stabilizing a critically sick uh, toddler. So when we got to see him in the ambulance, it was basically laying on his back. There was very little uh, medical treatment that was administered. We had to stabilize them as quickly as we could. You save that boy that day and you write about it in the following way, quote, I smiled and thought about how our lives had collided and how he was just getting started in life. It occurred to me that he would never know how close he had come to dying. Years from now, maybe when he was sitting at home with his family, someone will point to his scars and ask him how he got them. He won't remember. He will have been too young when it all happened. Any recollections he might have when he's older will probably be of his parents or sisters. He'll have no idea the two of us ever met. We'll certainly never meet again, unquote. What does an experience like that do to you? How does it change your outlook or perspective? I should say, Mark, even just reading it had me thinking about how I'm dedicating my time and talents. It must have had some kind of effect on you. Why don't you talk about that? You know, it's interesting, Sean. I mean, I'm I'm sort of middle age at this point, and I've been in medicine for for a number of years. And I think it's easy, you know, whether you're a doctor or not, to ask yourself as you approach a certain age, you know, whether you're contributing to the world, you know, what your impact actually is. I think those are questions that we all wrestle with. And as I thought back on this book of stories and, you know, you know, these stories were ones I had collected, I'd written the blog in the days and they had sat on my hard drive, honestly, for 10 years. But I, but I knew there was a story there and I kept meaning to get back to them. And, and when I un, opened these files up uh, and started reading these stories, I realized actually that uh, my impact in the world was measured in these stories that, you know, there was a little boy whose life I had directly saved and that in itself is consequential and that there were more stories like that. And it really reaffirmed, it really reaffirmed my passion for medicine and my desire to make an impact and reaffirms the importance of medicine. And I think, you know, whether you're a patient or whether you're a clinician, we're all so dissatisfied with both the American and the Canadian healthcare systems today uh, that we lose track of the fact that there's just something magical about it, you know, when you when you sit back and look at it. 
And so that's what I was trying to comment on in that paragraph. You encountered a lot of violence and the victims of war during your time as a volunteer. Many of the places in which you worked are marked by, or at least were marked by, civil war or terrorism. There's one reflection about the African soldiers responsible for fighting these forces that you met that really struck me. I, I want to read it and, and get your, your comments. You write, quote, I often wondered what the soldiers thought as they found themselves at war in a dangerous, distant country. Young soldiers, no matter where they are from, and at least until they are seasoned, typically convey a sense of inexperience and discomfort with the requirements of their professions. Shooting strangers is probably an alien vocation. But at least when you spend time with Western troops, you feel like there is a sense of moral coherence. This is why we're here. This is what we are doing. This is why it is good, or at least necessary. There was no such rationalization from the Africans. Most seemed wide-eyed and frightened and utterly unaware of what they were doing in Somalia, other than following orders and collecting a paycheck, as miserable as it probably was, unquote. How much do you think what's going on in these places is marked by, say, ideology or religion or other kind of big picture factors? And how much of it is just basic survival? That paragraph was really from a visit to, to Mogadishu. I took two trips to Africa. The first one was in 2008 and the second was in 2012. And something profound had happened in the interval, which was the rise of, of extremism coming out of Somalia. You know, if you, if you think back, Kenya had been bombed, shopping centers had been bombed, people were kidnapped and injured. There was in that short period of time, this like remarkable loss of innocence. Now, you know, there's there's been war in Africa, civil war in Africa for, for years. There's still today civil war underway in several African countries. What I was commenting on in particular was the African uh, Union soldiers who had been put into Somalia to try to maintain the peace in Somalia. And this was kind of a hodgepodge. I mean, there were Ugandan soldiers and some from French-speaking countries. And there was this hodgepodge of soldiers who were stuck in Somalia on a mission that I don't think they fully comprehended. They were mistreated. There was, in fact, a notable medical study of, of, of soldiers with serious symptoms that were ultimately attributed to micronutrient deficiencies, i.e. they weren't being fed properly in these places. And there's one notable case where we were flying three soldiers who'd been shot by, by rebels back to Nairobi. Really, there was no place to put them. No hospital was willing to take them because the African Union wasn't paying the bills. And, and the whole thing seems really, I looked at these guys and I thought, goodness, you know, it's not that you're fighting for a cause or an ideology. You're just unfortunately stuck here. This is your job and you're being shot at and it's a way to make a paycheck and support your family at home. And there's something very sad about that. You know, we ran into the African Union soldiers. So I also ran into American soldiers, which which I, I didn't know that there were so many American soldiers in East Africa. They were embedded all up and down the coast in major bases all the way from Djibouti down into Kenya. And we ran into them a couple of times. And I, you know, I, as you could see in the book, I also had misgivings about, about American soldiers there. But, you know, these, these were hard conversations. Yeah, that's a good segue to my next question, because as you say, you do, the book outlines a, a degree of, of introspection about America's involvement in East Africa and, and the West more generally. Why don't you talk about some of those difficult conversations and questions you, you had to encounter during your time there? Yeah, you know, I was, we were there just after the outbreak of these hostilities coming out of Somalia. Somalia was incredibly unstable. Uh, the Americans had put a lot of resources into East Africa. There was a up in Djibouti, a major drone base with billions, billions of dollars of drones that were there 
to survey uh, Yemen and down into the the coasts of Africa, and you know they could drop bombs remotely. Um, and there was this massive infrastructure of of contractors who had built these bases that were expanding, and this militarization of East Africa. And I, you know, I was torn. I'm I'm an immigrant to the United States. I'm a Canadian American. I have an enormous affection for both countries, but I am also painfully aware of uh, America's misadventures in Iraq as an example, Afghanistan as an example. And, and I, at the same time as that wasn't a Pollyanna, right? I mean, these are serious, serious terroristic concerns that threaten to destabilize the entire region. And the Americans fortunately were keeping a handle on it. But I distinctly remember as I, as, as we flew past these drones and I saw them on the tarmac, how uncomfortable I was that I just didn't have full confidence in the decision-making abilities of the American leadership. And that was, and you know, I, I, one of the questions I had was, do people really know that there's this buildup of, of armed forces here in East Africa? I don't think people do or, or know what they do at all. And so the accountability is a bit lacking, but it was eye-opening. I, I didn't, you know, as, as you'll see in the book, Sean, I mean, I don't have great answers for some of these questions that come up. I mean, they're terrible questions about how we spend resources and, and questions about public health and questions about the militarization of Africa and, and how we deal with these things. And, you know, I don't profess to have any particular expert knowledge of how to handle these questions, but all I can do in the book, I think is to raise the concerns I had as a, as a foreigner and as a fresh set of eyes uh, and to share them with my readers. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. You write at different times in the book about how you transcended differences with the patients and families that you were serving. There's a really poignant example along these lines in the middle of the book or so where you experience this moment of shared trust with a family aboard a plane as you care for their son. But there are other instances where you feel self-conscious about coming to Africa to, quote unquote, save people. How were you generally received by the people in these places? Talk about your interactions and at times your own insecurities. Yeah, you know, Africa requires a lot of introspection, right? Um, this really isn't kind of the hero's journey of a savior coming to Africa. I mean, I had I had such a, a really ultimately a microscopic impact there are plenty of people who've worked full time for aid agencies and NGOs who've dedicated their entire lives to doing this. And so I, you know, I, I, I really write this as a dilettante, quite honestly, in Africa. But, but somebody I think who went in with a set of a fresh set of eyes to try to answer, you know, some of these questions. I found the, I found being a doctor there a really profound experience for for the reasons that you've identified. There were many times patients with whom I couldn't speak. Sometimes we were lucky enough that. The nurse who was, spoke Swahili obviously could communicate with them. There were a couple of times we ended up in um, a little bit further west in French-speaking countries where the, the nurse, you know, spoke English and Swahili but didn't speak French. And I broke out my my bad Canadian French <laughs> and, you know, was able to, to speak with these patients. 
But in the in the story you identify, this these were patients who spoke a, a very local regional dialect. You know, none of us spoke the same languages, and I realized that like we had didn't have the same background, we didn't share the same religion, we didn't have the same customs, we didn't live in the same types of places, didn't speak the same language. Like there could you you couldn't pick two people who were more different than me and the parents of this young child who had been so badly injured by by a speeding car, but. I realized there was something so profound in that experience that there was an implicit understanding of what the doctor was there to do. And this extraordinary level of trust. I mean, this 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 mother handed over her her baby to me to take care of. And it was this, you know, remarkable and touching experience. And um and similarly watching them, they, you know, the the child had never been in a car, the parents had never been in an airplane, and watching them get into the air ambulance and take off and fly towards Nairobi. You know, I, I felt myself almost feeling paternalistic, trying to protect them from the city and from the airplane and explaining how things worked. And uh, these are really profound experiences. Right? Talk about the security that you and other medical professionals had with you. You outlined some close calls in the book. Were you afraid for your safety, Mark? So, I mean, we, we did, we had really no way to protect ourselves, right? We are unarmed air ambulance, you know. That's actually probably a feature, not a bug, because I, I, you know, you can't, you can't carry weapons on an air ambulance from country to country in Africa. So, you know, we depended on two things. I think we depended on the goodwill of of people that we came in contact with. Amref has a terrific reputation in East Africa, and people are willing, really, to go out of their way to be helpful to the NGO. It, it almost like when you drive around the ambulances in Nairobi with Amref flying doctors on the door, people think this is a huge hometown success story and are very protective. Of, of the service and of the doctors who work there. And so that was our first level of defense. The second was that the operations people were just fantastic. They had they knew people all across the continents and were fed in real-time information and intel on where it was safe, where it was not safe. And so in 2008, we were certainly flying into some strange places that only earlier had been hostile, but were immediately determined not to be hostile anymore because the real-time information. But in the second part of the book, I, I do confess that I was more concerned than on my first trip to Africa, primarily because we were now flying into Somalia. And it, it was a, it's an act of civil war. I mean, if, if you happen to have a mechanical malfunction in these planes and you're forced to land someplace, there's not an insubstantial risk of being kidnapped, uh, quite honestly. I mean, you you really don't want that to happen. So, So the ante was definitely raised on the second part of my mission there. As our listeners can hear... Many of the stories that you outline in the book are so vivid that the details are really personal. You, you put the reader into the scene. I, I think, for instance, of the, the story of the, the family and the young boy on the plane, where you talk about the awareness that comes over you at one point when you realize how physically close you are to the mother as you care for her son. Talk a bit about the process you undertook to recreate these experiences so vividly and the materials that you were able to draw from to, to produce the book. Yeah, I was fortunate at the time I was keeping a blog. And, and I know this, uh, Dr. James Miskalik has has written you know, a terrific book about six months in Sudan based on his blog. He's a, He was an inspiration, a wonderful writer. So I kept, I was keeping a blog at the time and publishing stories to my friends and family who were interested in following along. And, uh, and so I had fortunately great notes, but you know, the most the most vivid moments were really imprinted in my brain. I could I could recreate them for you uh, even without the notes, uh, and that was a particularly touching moment. 
with, with that patient. You write that you were motivated in part because you were in search of purpose as a physician. You conclude the book by writing, quote, if I were to write a book, I thought I'd probably write as its conclusion that I'd left America feeling like my purpose was unclear and return as a better doctor or more certain of my path forward as a healer, unquote. How has the experience shaped you as a physician? And perhaps more importantly, Mark, how has it shaped you as a person? Yeah, I mean, I, I in the latter part of the book, quote two people extensively. One is Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the second uh, secretary general of the UN, who was an extremely thoughtful guy. He wrote a book called Markings, which was uh, his own personal reflections on on working in Africa in particular and uh, and dealing with the continent. Uh, and so the second inspiration was uh, a writer, theologian, Joseph Campbell, um, who had written extensively about the journeys that people must make sometimes far away from home in order to come closer to themselves, right? That somehow this journey creates a sacred space to listen to your internal motivations and your needs. And that very much for me was the case. I mean, I thought it was important. People ask me, I mean, why are you writing the book now? I mean, you've, you've been a paper pusher <laughs> for a decade uh, <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're certainly not flying to Africa today. Why, why publish the stories? And and the answer is that in retrospect, I realized that the trip to Africa was such a pivotal moment of introspection, and it really very much steered my course forward in, in the medical work I would do subsequent to that. And so it, it was it was sort of my personal inward journey. What are some of the specific lessons you took away from the experience? And what are some of the lessons you think listeners and readers ought to take away in terms of how they understand the world in, in general and in Africa in particular? I think there were a handful of very interesting practical lessons for me. Working in that type of role in Africa made clear, for example, that there were inherent tensions in things like paying for air ambulances when basic healthcare isn't really available, right? Is, is it ethical to spend all that money on a medevac when there are children not getting vaccinations? You know, open, open question that I set up for myself. You know, this emerging phenomenon of time-sensitive illnesses in Africa. What, what you started to see with affluence is that car accidents and myocardial infarctions or, or heart attacks and strokes, all exquisitely time-sensitive illnesses that weren't really a factor in Africa 20 years ago. This sort of conflict between caring for an individual patient and caring for public health, that, that came up with a highly infectious patient that we were really struggling with. And then this sort of questions about the safety net, public safety net that surrounds us all in the West and yet is absent in Africa and sort of how you interface with those systems. You know, I think what I walked away with was this conviction that there oftentimes are no great answers to these really hard questions, right? And you have to learn to live with ambiguity and to try to structure your actions in a way that makes moral sense to you. You know, in the first, in the first question, this question about spending spending money on air ambulances when when the basics weren't being met in Africa. I kept coming back to this parable of the uh, star, the um, the sea star. And, you know, the, as the parable goes, and it's it's a bit of a cliche because you see it now in like sort of, you know, self-help LinkedIn posts. But <laughs> but the parable basically is a guy is down on the seashore. The tide has gone out. It's a, it's a Lauren Isley story. But the, the, the tide has gone out. There's all of this sea life on the on the beach that's dying slowly as the sun comes out. And there's a guy on the beach throwing the sea stars back into the ocean. And the guy comes along and says, why are you wasting time throwing an individual sea star into the ocean? And the guy responds, like, it doesn't 
it matters to that C star, all right? To that individual C star, it matters a lot. And I kept coming back to that parable as I was thinking about time in Africa. I mean, if you find yourself you know, unconscious on a field someplace in Africa, you know, getting a highly qualified air ambulance is the most important thing. And so it's very easy to talk in generalities and, and sort of high-level policy concepts. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's where the answers lie. I think the answers sometimes are far more granular. I would just say in parentheses, I found that through line to the book so profound that in the world of development, there's a lot of focus these days on scale. I think, for instance, of the of the work of the effective altruists who who want to, in effect, put these questions almost into a, a formulaic calculation. And and the problem, of course, is that strips out the humanity that you encountered, including that little boy in Tanzania whose life will be profoundly changed because you encountered him there. I want to pick up a point, though, uh, that you alluded to in your last answer, and that is possible tension between public health intervention and individual autonomy. I think you were referring to this powerful scene in the book where you're managing a very sick patient who's bleeding and possibility of of a virus like e Ebola arises. Why don't you talk a bit about that particular experience and, and the extent to which it serves as, as something of a of a metaphor for this possible tension between public health and individual autonomy? Yeah, and that's a particular scene we recall to Ethiopia to transfer a, a young man from a, a, a small Ethiopian hospital back to Nairobi for care. And um, it, we landed on the runway, the ambulance came to meet us, the patient showed up with all of his medical records. And as I started flipping through them, we realized this guy was like really, really sick, right? His liver wasn't working correctly. Um, his kidneys had shut down. His blood pressure was awful. Uh, he had started hemorrhaging really from everywhere. His eyes were bleeding. You know, his platelet count was next to nothing. A really, really sick fellow. And as I looked at him, I suddenly realized that we may actually be dealing with uh, a hemorrhagic virus like Ebola, although there are several others. And the risk here, of course, is that these are highly, highly infectious viruses. It wouldn't be the first time that an air ambulance had transferred a patient with uh, an infectious hemorrhagic virus, right? This had happened in South Africa earlier, and it had killed the paramedics, and it had killed nurses, and had introduced infection in a very remote area. And so the struggle facing me was that I was on one level wearing the doctor's hat. I had a patient in front of me who was my patient, who was my responsibility. But there were these other concerns as well. I mean, from a theoretical perspective, maybe not so theoretical, I mean, from a very real perspective, there was the risk of taking this highly infectious patient from a rural area and transporting him to Nairobi and potentially infecting a city of millions of people with an infectious patient. What I realized is, you know, not even taking into account the risk to me and the nurse and the, the whole thing. What I realized in retrospect was that my classical training as a doctor had not prepared me to make those kinds of decisions. Like there is nothing in the Hippocratic Oath about protecting sort of amorphous, vague populations of people you have no relationship with, uh, nor does it give you permission to sacrifice your patient by leaving him on the runway in order to potentially save lives down. So, so we had to, uh, on the fly, make some hard decisions about what to do with this patient. We were talking, Mark, before we started recording about your family life as it relates to these trips, the, the the first one in 2008, you you went as a single person. The second trip, you were married, and, and in fact, your wife may have been expecting at the time. 
near the conclusion of the book, you write the following about being a father and the experience that you're reflecting on. And you say, quote, I would take my children by the hand and show them on the map where I used to fly and tell them that I'd thrown myself open with courage and humility. I would danced at the frontier and then I'd understood. It was an extraordinary journey of self-discovery, unquote. Have you talked to your children much, Mark, about the experiences that you encountered in, in Africa and, and what do they understand about the work that their dad did? You know, I think my children are still fairly young, so they, I, I think they have a general sense of kind of the, that I practiced medicine was in an airplane. And uh, I, I don't think they fully, I don't think they fully understood exactly what this was about. You know, my goal in raising kids is, is, is really to raise worldly children who are prepared to tackle hard problems. And in fact, I dedicated the, the book to my children and I wrote to them in the front dedication section. It's a once in a century plastic moment when everything shifts. May you become the worldly, curious, and ethical leaders that the world needs. And I thought, you know, if I can raise children who feel uh, a sense of responsibility for tackling the hard issues in the world today, whether it's medicine, whether it's policy, whether it's global warming, but children who feel comfortable with strangers, feel comfortable in different environments, feel like they have a responsibility for tackling these hard problems and feel empowered to do so, gosh, then I think I will have been a success as a father. Yeah, here, here. Leads me to my final question. What do you want our listeners to leave with in terms of how they ought to understand the people and the places that you encounter? You know, uh, Africa is such a curious place. I, I think to a stranger who's never been, it, it feels really quite a foreign, it's a foreign experience. The language is different. The food is different. Like, listen, like most places in the world that aren't home. But what I learned really ultimately is that people are struggling with the same problems. You know, they have a different set of issues from the ones we have, but ultimately they're, they're struggling with, with the very similar set of issues, right? Making sure their children are raised properly, uh, that they raise good, decent, ethical human beings, etc. But I, I was also very much taken by the warm welcome by the Africans I met. I was um, very, very much impressed by the level of, of hospitality and welcome that was extended. Uh, I think ultimately, maybe we're more similar than we are dissimilar. What a thoughtful way to, to end uh, what's been a, a thoughtful conversation about a, a thoughtful book. It's called Urgent Calls from Distant Places, an Emergency Doctor's Notes About Life and Death on the Frontiers of East Africa. Dr. Mark David Monk, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks so much, Sean. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you for listening to The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. Please share this episode of Hub Dialogues with friends and family and leave us a review wherever you get your audio online. You can also go to our website, www.thehub.ca, to sign up for our free weekly newsletter featuring the best of The Hub's journalism and commentary. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolovsky Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.